Hello, podcast land. Welcome back to another episode of Tour Guide Tell All. We are your friendly neighborhood DC tour guides. I'm Rebecca. And I'm Becca. And we are the the Rebecca's. (laughs) And we are back, gang. It is April and there are cherry blossoms and leaves on the trees and all that fun spring things. And it's exciting. And we are here to talk to you guys about all things scandalous and exciting and lovely and uh, a little bit of American history. And it's going to be great. We have done, if you've been sort of with us the last few weeks, we've done a lot of episodes about particular people for Black History Month, for Women's History Month. And so we decided, Becca, actually, this is Becca's idea because all good ideas originate with Becca. Uh, She thought it would be good to do some event type pods for a few weeks. So we just, we're going to shift away from individual people. And she wanted to talk so very much about the 1893 World's Columbian Exposition in Chicago, Illinois, which is basically the intersection of every cool person who was alive at that time. Yeah, this is like one of those events that we have already mentioned on the podcast multiple times. And when we do this episode, and as we go through, you're going to hear so many familiar names, you're going to hear so many things that overlap with stuff we've already talked about. This is like everybody important. Yes. Coming together right at the turn of the century, you know, from the 1900 or 19th century into the 20th century. So it's kind of a crazy Forrest Gumpian type event where everybody's kind of mixing together. Forrest Gumpian type event. That's exactly what it is. There are so many names of not only people, but things that we're going to drop. There are products you can go to your local grocery store right now and buy that were first introduced at the 1893 Chicago World's Fair. It's really, really one of those amazing events that just... Almost everything we're going to talk about could be its own separate pod, and maybe someday it will be. You never do know. But first, we just, before we lead in, uh, we're going to do some, April's going to be some fun episodes about more places. Uh, We also want to mention really quickly our first ladies promotion. Uh, We are trying to get a certain number of Patreon followers for our Patreon page so that we can talk about first ladies. So we are closing in on that number. Uh, We will do extra episodes. We will let our Patreon subscribers vote on which first lady they would most like to hear about. Uh, And then we'll do a special slate of episodes in addition to our normal pod episodes all about first ladies. So if you want to become a patron subscriber uh, or you know somebody else who might like the pod, this is the moment so we can talk about some first ladies. And yeah, Becca, Chicago, 1893. So two quick things. One, it may seem a little weird that we are DC tour guides talking about something that took place in Chicago. And I will just go ahead and plug, you should check out Free Tours by Foot Chicago. They do a number of walking tours that cover a lot of areas that tie into the World's Fair, tie into a lot of these figures. A lot of the important people in this obviously um, will come up on those tours. So we'll put a link to that in the show notes. But obviously, if you're enjoying this, you're going to want to go to Chicago eventually and check it out. However, pretty much everybody that is involved in this fair, everybody that we're talking about has major ties and connections to Washington, D.C. And the World's Fair has a direct influence on Washington, D.C. as we know it today. So there is a lot more connection than you may hear from the title. The other really big caveat I'm just going to put out there, and this is if you know anything about the Chicago World's Fair, World Columbian Expedition, I'm going to call it a World's Fair for ease, is that there was a serial killer by the name of H.H. Holmes. And we're just going to skip all of that 
for this episode. It's really deserving of its own episode. It's also covered pretty heavily in like true crime podcasts and kind of other places on the internet. So we're going to skip that for now. I assume we will come back to it later in the future of this podcast, but we are just going to completely leave that off for another time. And then I'll just open with, if you have not read The Devil and the White City by Eric Larson, that is the absolute sort of key text about the fair. Uh, He does an exceptional job of weaving together all of these stories, the H.H. Holmes stuff, a lot of the people we're talking about today, the impact of the fair on American culture. So there are lots of great books out there and a lot of great resources about the Chicago's World Fair, but that's definitely the best. So World's Fairs are like a thing that we don't have as often I think in our era, our lifetime worked temporarily, but this was a huge deal, a huge, huge deal. And it was still a relatively new idea in 1893. The first World Expo was in 1851 in London. And this is sort of um, kind of an idea that's picking up at a time when industrialization is booming. We're starting to have the big industrial revolution. We're starting to have more global trade, more sort of global travel. So there's this interest in kind of building connections. You've got a lot of innovators and creators in the 19th century that want a chance to innovate together, but also to showcase to potential investors. And so this is something that is an idea that picks up a lot of steam. We're going to have World's Fairs in New York City in 1853. There'll be one in Philadelphia in 1876, which ties to the centennial of the Declaration of Independence and kind of the founding of America. 1876's World Fair was super popular. It really kind of helped the United States sort of boom after the Civil War in terms of like its global standing, kind of like post-Civil War, like we're reunited and we're back together. But it was a huge financial failure. It lost so much money for government, for businesses, for people involved, that it made people really nervous about the idea of hosting another one of these world fairs. And it also should be mentioned, we're, we have them in the U.S., but you'll read about them in other places as well. There's there's an 1862 in London, there's 1889 in Paris, Brussels in 1897, 1900 back in Paris. And you will notice this is not representative of the world. This is basically the U.S. and Europe. But the idea is it's an, a cultural exchange. And this is at a time when travel has become easier. So it's a lot easier to get from places across an ocean to either the U.S. or for the U.S. to go over to Europe. Uh, and they want we want to show off. We are able to travel easier. Leisure travel is becoming a thing sort of slowly, but it is. And people want to have great big ideas that they're going to have the urban, the uh, idea of like urban life is becoming more and more complete at this time. Uh, and so you have people that want to show off and go different places and introduce the interests of the United States in a European context or vice versa. So this is sort of a, a global phenomenon that overtakes a lot of people. So there is a sense of competition. Every time one of these big world fair happens, there's there's global exchange, but there's also a sense of one-upsmanship. Uh, you mentioned the 1889 Paris World's Fair. That was a big success. The Eiffel Tower comes out of that. So, you know, it's sort of like, okay, well, they've done this incredible big thing. We've got to host a fair so that we can do something that's even better. So there is also a sense of competition. And 1893 is when the fair will actually take place. But the idea for this fair comes even earlier because 1892 marks the 400th anniversary of Christopher Columbus, and big air quotes here, discovering (laughs) the new world. 
And you should just go to our Columbus podcast. Yeah, we did a whole pot on that about how Columbus is trash. But at the moment in 1892, 1893, Columbus, this is sort of when we rediscover Columbus and sort of forget how trash he was. And this is when the Columbus worship starts to begin the 400th anniversary. It's a big deal. And so the idea is that we are going to stage this big world's fair, this world's Columbian exposition hence the name, uh, to celebrate the 400th year of the founding of the new world that we discovered, quote unquote, uh, the new world, uh, and sort of all the cool stuff that we do now because we've been here a while and we do cool things. That's the idea. And there actually is a big competition for where it's going to be. New York participates, St. Louis participates, Philadelphia participates, uh, and Chicago eventually kind of wins it out. And it's a big kind of coup for Chicago. They had just had a fire like 20 years earlier that burned down an inordinate percentage of the city. And so this is the sign that Chicago is back, baby. We're ready to go. The Midwest is here. Yeah, this is kind of a tricky thing because you have to have the backing of the U.S. government to sort of do this kind of event on this scale, but Congress is not going to pay for this. So Congress, to be impartial and bipartisan, gets to choose the location, but Congress is making that decision based on where a lot of big millionaires and big businessmen are pledging money if their city is chosen. And this is really the height of the Gilded Age. So you have a lot of people with a lot of money. This is when business and industry is booming, but this is also a time in the U.S. where we're getting increasing tension, labor tensions, racial tensions. We've talked about this on the podcast about where race relations are in the 1890s. We're sort of starting to hit this really low point again in the United States. We have a lot of progressive movements when it comes to things like labor, suffrage, civil rights. And then you also have this wave of immigration. So there's a lot happening in the United States in this time. And what you really have is a rare group of people with millions and millions to spend deciding where this fair is going to go. And there's a man named Lyman Gage, who is just deserving of his own podcast, like everybody we're going to talk about today. He is a banker, but who is obsessed with spiritualism and astrology. Like, he does not go in for any normal science. He goes to seances and he talks to ghosts and he's reading his moon chart at a time where like today you can go on Instagram and we can all just dig into the astrology world. Lyman Gage is the astrology girlfriend of the 1890s, but he is also super rich as a banker from Chicago. And he basically goes on a mad dash because New York at this point in the kind of the, the tussle has the most money pledged. And so he does a 24 hour fundraising marathon goes to everyone he knows in Chicago and they basically beat New York City's offer by several million and Congress is like okay and there is a great symbolism to Chicago being chosen but there's also a lot of money being thrown at this uh one of the big kind of pluses for Chicago too is they did have this fire so it's a city that needs to be rebuilt. It's also more Western, which there's a huge interest in Western expansion at this point. We're growing as a country. We're manifesting destiny. And there's just more space. Chicago is surrounded by a lot of open space. In New York, where would you put this fair by 1893? Right. There's nowhere to go. They've already had one and yeah. it was tough. Yeah, there's nowhere to go in New York. This is why New York's so tall. The only place to go is up. Where Chicago, you can build out. And so that's the idea for Chicago. It's also going to introduce the U.S. to the Midwest. It's going to be sort of, you know, getting all the, the West has just been one, quote unquote. 
um, if you believe in that sort of terrible thing. Uh, and so the idea is we're going to show off that we've gotten this whole continent and Chicago is smack dab in the middle and it's going to be amazing. And so in Chicago, Jackson Park is the chosen location. The fair is massive. It's going to span over 630 acres of land. It's a huge undertaking. And the man who's sort of tasked with making this happen is a man named Daniel Burnham. He will be named the director of works. He's an architect by trade. He has a partner named John Root. So their company is Burnham and Root. If you go to Chicago, lots and lots of Burnham and Root buildings. John Root was sort of seen as maybe like the legend or the kind of creative genius by many. Um, and Daniel Burnham, sort of the workhorse at the time, that was the impression. So they get tasked with taking on the fair as their firm. And then John Root dies before this even gets off the ground. So Daniel Burnham really has to put this on his shoulders entirely. He has a lot of people trying to undermine him. He has a lot of people who are fighting to get control. And he really just becomes kind of like an obsessive about this. And he'll really later on to be like, John Root had no ideas for this. This is all my concept. This is me. He gets very egocentric about the 1893 World's Fair. Daniel Burnham's a fascinating guy. He's got a, a building in DC that's very famous. He's got a building in New York City that's very famous. And he has several buildings in Chicago that are very famous. Like he's kind of a big deal. And really very obsessive and strange, but very cool. The, you know, buildings he has in D.C. and New York, Becca? I can tell you here in Washington, D.C., he has two buildings and a fountain, which is Union Station is his most famous. The Postal Museum building right across the street is also a Burnham building. Uh, and then the Columbus Fountain, which is right out front of Union Station. New York City, I don't know. I don't know if I know off the top of my head, which is Burnham's. The Flatiron Building. Flatiron Building. Oh. One of the most love, famous buildings in New York. Yeah. Oh, yep. I love the Flatiron Building. I know. So great. So he is going to be the director of works. So it means he's basically going to have to oversee everybody. He's going to have to coordinate all of these people. He's going to have to try to get the money going for this, which this is all, the entire World's Fair. And Larson's book gets better into the nitty gritty on the money. I mean, it, it's a money pit. You know, there's money coming in and then going out and coming in and going out. And it never seems to be enough. I feel like this is the the modern day equivalent would be the Olympics mm. in a very real without sports, obviously, back then. Very much. Uh, so. But I feel like it's you building this entire enclosed world for a limited amount of time. And it just requires an intense amount of coordination between the government, various government entities and the funders and the needs of everybody who's coming. I feel like that's the sort of our modern day equivalent. And so Daniel Burnham, I mean, he basically lives on the site of Jackson Park during all of the construction and throughout the fair. So he's just like the crazy dude that lives there. He will oversee every aspect of this. It's, it's kind of a miracle it doesn't kill him because he pours so much of himself into it. And I like what you mentioned here is that so much of this is meant to be temporary. This is very much a, we just have to get it built. It needs to look cool. And it does not matter if it lasts longer than a year because the, the fair is going to run. Even though the anniversary of Columbus's landing is 1892, the fair actually opens in 1893. And it's going to run for a chunk of, of that year. Just to sort of tie Burnham to Washington, D.C., Burnham will say um, later on, make no little plans. They have no magic to stir men's blood and probably will not themselves be realized. And it's a beautiful embodiment, I think, of what he's trying to do with the World's Fair, which is make no little plans. Like, let's make this big. Let's get, you know, everything needs to be 
over the top. Everything needs to be bigger and better than it's ever been before. Nobody's coming to this World's Fair to see something they've already seen. We want to see the new. We want to see the exceptional. But this is also going to be sort of his guiding ethos for architecture. And he brings that to Washington, D.C. He's going to be very influential in shaping our city. 1901, we've talked about the Macmillan plan a little bit on the podcast. This is basically after the World's Fair. The World's Fair is such a big success. It's so beautiful. And members of Congress start looking around our nation's capital and going like, we don't have a lot happening here. We have a Capitol and a White House. And um, none of our government buildings are pretty or interesting. And, you know, our National Mall is covered with railroad tracks and, you know, all of kind of what we think of as D.C. today isn't really existing. And so Senator McMillan basically brings together everybody from the fair, including Daniel Burnham, to beautify Washington, D.C. and to bring back Pierre L'Enfant's original vision. And so Burnham is really tasked with overseeing how to implement what's known as the Macmillan Plan. And he ultimately becomes the first chairman of the U.S. Commission of Fine Arts, which today is very important. It's responsible for when we talk about memorials and their designs, and we talk about new federal buildings. I mean, the U.S. Commission of Fine Arts has a role in all of that. And it's really interesting to me, Burnham is not the only person who's talking about these, like the Gilded Age is basically go big or go home. And so his buildings are very much in that spirit. Like if you've seen Union Station in Washington today, which is a Burnham building, it is over the top in almost every conceivable way. They've got Roman Praetorians guarding, like not real ones, but like like statues of Praetorians guarding the entire facade. It's all very just crazy. It's There's so much... Uh, there you don't know where to look first and that's a very common sentiment for builders of the day there's another firm that's going to be involved in the Colombian exhibition called McKim McKim I got that wrong um hang on a sec I'm gonna find this one because it's gonna bother me Anyway, we'll skip it. Um, sorry, guys. I'm going to back that one up. Um, there's another uh, our very famous architect, Stanford White, who's kind of tangentially involved with his firm is involved with the Chicago World's Fair. Uh, he's going to design buildings that are basically the same mold. They do more homes, but this is the height of the Gilded Age. Everyone wants to show off their wealth in the most conspicuous possible manner. And so Burnham is very much of that style, like show off and make big plans and do big things. And it's really interesting to me that so much of the DC that the tourists see today evolves from this time period. And in general, the Chicago's World Fair is going to be a big influencer in spreading the Beau art style, uh, spreading a return to neoclassical for government buildings. And this is true, not just in Washington, D.C., but in cities and towns across the United States. As there's an interest in building infrastructure at the turn of the century, the World's Fair influence is going to be huge. And that's why so many of our government buildings from this period, and not just federal government, but state and local government, are either neoclassical or Beau arts because it comes out of that, that era. Another kind of big figure in the fair is a man named George Davis. He's named the director general. He's more of a politician. So he comes from the world of politics. He was a very popular politician from Illinois. He was a Civil War veteran. He fought for the Union. And he sort of gets this job. And it's supposed to be like a cool, chill political appointment. It's like, man, I've I've done a lot in my life. I've served my country. Now I get to be in charge of this fair. And I'm going to get all the credit 
for just overseeing things. And that's not really how it works because Daniel Burnham is such a control freak. Davis and Burnham are going to fight constantly. Davis is going to be unconvinced that this is going to work. And unfortunately, Davis will really be overshadowed by Burnham when it comes to celebrating this fair. And then sort of the third other really important figure in sort of creating the look of the fair and the feel of the fair is Frederick Law Olmsted, who is tasked by doing the grounds for the fair. And you definitely know Frederick Law Olmsted, even if you don't realize you know his name, if you have been to Central Park, that is Frederick Law Olmsted. If you have been on the grounds of the United States Capitol building, our Capitol grounds as they exist today are based on Olmsted's reimagining of the grounds. Uh, and so Burnham, at this point, Olmsted's uh, late in his career, he's older, and Burnham really respects Olmsted, and he just doesn't think there's anyone else in America who has an eye for landscape architecture the way Olmsted does and who can create a sense of place. And so he's going to really like, I mean, he pulls Olmsted basically like out of retirement, like, please come do this. And um, what I love about this is this is like not even really a landscape. It's a seascape that he creates. He's going to build a giant man-made lake. I mean, dozens and dozens of pools and canals that sort of connect them. So it's sort of like it's the white city is what we sort of call it, but it's really built on islands amid all this man-made water. You know what I think of when I think of this? I think of the modern day equivalent that I think of is when you go to Disney World and there's like that lagoon with all the different parks lit up around the lagoon. I don't know what that's called. I'm not. The different lands. Yeah, 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 exactly. That's what I think of. It's all lit up. It's all around water. And it's just, it must have been extraordinary. Like this is the very beginning of electricity, you know? So they're using this in Chicago and the, for the first time, like this is like... It, their reach almost exceeds their grasp, but they managed to do it. And it just is such a great testament to the like, first of all, massive amounts of money that are being poured into this. Uh, and second of all, the ingenuity of these men who really want this to happen and want this to be a big deal and want to show off the technology that we're evolving in the United States. I think it's really kind of interesting. Yeah. And I love that Olmsted was like, he could have just planted a bunch of pretty trees or been like, here's some floral arrangements or here's sort of a Victorian garden. And he's like, no, we're, we're going to make this otherworldly by really integrating in this water. And it speaks to sort of the Columbia, the Columbus idea of like crossing an ocean and out of this water is sort of rising a new world. It's really phenomenal. Um, and there are electric boats that people could ride on in these waterways, which this is just coming out of the steam powered era. So it's really exciting. Sadly, though, this is really kind of the end for Olmsted. This fair takes a lot out of him. He's basically forced to really, really retire after the fair due to senility. Uh, he's going to pass away not all that long after the Chicago World's Fair. So this is really a beautiful final hurrah for Olmsted. But because of the ephemeral nature of it, almost nothing that he created still exists today from this. And then um, you have the exhibits. So the idea of this Colombian exposition is to have exhibits. And there are 65,000 exhibits that are going to be part of this World's Fair. 65,000 exhibits. They are organized by a man named G. Brown Good of the Smithsonian Institution, which the Smithsonian Institute is at this point not really thought of as a museum that the general public goes to visit, it's still very much a research institution. So much of what the Smithsonian is doing is research. So it makes sense that they would be in charge of the exhibits. G. Brown 
Good was assistant to Spencer Baird, the first curator of the Smithsonian. G. Brown Good has a really interesting life. He's a fish and bird guy, which I don't know anything about either of those topics, but he like did a ton of important research in those fields. And he died in Lanier Heights in DC when he was only 45 years old. And he dies in the middle of working on a book on the first 50 years of Smithsonian history. And Spencer Baird will actually finish the book and dedicate it to G. Brown Good. So I just found it really, really interesting. There's a lot of really young men, men in the prime of their career involved in this fair, as well as men like Burnham Olmsted, who are sort of late in their careers as well. So you've kind of a great duality there. The exhibits at the 1893 Columbian Exposition are often problematic. <laughs> These are I think Rebecca sort of touched on this well a little bit earlier or, or kind of a good point is like, this is very much a Western civilization forward look at the world. And this fair is being organized by rich white men. So the exhibits that are international, there are exhibitions about cultures from all over the world being presented, but they are often being organized by people who have no concept of what that culture actually is. And so I, I think it's important to note that there is a lot that is happening at this World's Fair that is, is not great. And that if we were to go and see today, we would be pretty upset. Kind of exploitative. Yeah, 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 yeah. There's a lot of Native Americans are painted in a bad light because we've just won the West. African Americans are not really represented. And when they are, they're not... It's not great. Frederick Douglass, who we've talked about, Ida B. Wells, who we've talked about, both of them are going to protest, organize big protests about the Chicago World's Fair. And Frederick Douglass is towards the end of his life at this point. He is very famous and very established. Ida B. Wells is not. She's the opposite. She's kind of coming up. And uh, they're both going to really take the fair to task for its lack of African-American representation in sort of a holistic way. So that's part of the, yeah, the exhibits are, um, they're definitely meant to glorify one particular point of view. Very much so, which also is sort of fitting yeah. because they're inspired by Columbus. Yeah. So, you know, it all sort of works, <laughs> but it's also not good. Yeah. And in general, as we think about this fair, we think about the white city. That is what the fair ends up being called. It's because there are these beautiful neoclassical and Beaux-Arts style buildings. Burnham has the concept that they should all be sort of monochromatic. And so they're all painted white, which also covers a multitude of sins architecturally, or I should say from a construction standpoint, because some of these go up very, very quickly, very close to the deadline. So being able to slap everything with white paint makes it very easy to cover up where things have been put up very quickly. And then the entire fair is illuminated by electricity by a man we've talked about on this podcast, George Westinghouse. So we did the episode about Edison and Westinghouse last fall. And you might know this, you know, Edison, Westinghouse, they were rivals. They were both desperately trying to get this fair because it would be huge business. And Westinghouse is really angry with Edison. And if you want to know why, you got to listen to that podcast episode. So they're basically like competing, 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 making bigger promises, bigger promises, bigger promises. And Westinghouse comes in at the last minute and basically says, I can do it for 70 cents, an electrical lamp less. 
And like the fair is like, okay, well, if you're promising us everything Edison's promising and you can do it for 70 cents a lamp cheaper, sure. So Westinghouse gets the contract and then is like, oh my God, I have to do all of this. I'm going to make way less money than I thought I was going to. So it's financially a loss for Westinghouse, but from a branding perspective, from a publicity perspective, from a sticking it to Edison perspective, it's a big win for Westinghouse, but it's phenomenal. Imagine coming from a tiny rural Midwestern town and you approach this shimmering, gleaming, illuminated white city that's sitting on a lagoon, people's minds were blown. I've heard that the time of day when the um, lights came on at night was an event for people. Like it was like a light parade, except not like people would stand there at just awestruck when the lights would come on at night because it was something they'd never seen before. Electricity is brand new and it's a not in a lot of places. It's city really only at this point. And just to see this entire beautiful white city lit up all at once, it must have been just extraordinary to watch. It's hard for us to consider it this way now, but the sheer technology on display the scale of it. And the fair really was about that. It was about showcasing American innovation, ingenuity, uh, showing how tech savvy and tech forward the United States was. The United States may not have compared to the other European countries that are hosting these World's Fairs, we may not have the depth of history or may not have some of the other things we felt insecure about, but we had science and technology and we had it in spades. And so this is so much about what we're trying to do. This fair is going to be a huge influence because people from all around the world, 27 million people would come and see this. And then they come back to their towns and say, we want neoclassical buildings. We want electricity. We want city beautiful, which is what this movement will become called, which means taking kind of municipal art and making it beautiful and functional. And so this is going to have huge impacts for the people who see it. So the actual fair itself runs from May of 1893 to October of 1893. So it runs for quite a long time. 46 nations will participate. And this was the first World's Fair to have national pavilions. So in addition to the over 60,000 exhibitions you have, within those there were national pavilions where countries could send over delegates or representatives. They could create their own sort of pavilion. So it was kind of like taking a little world tour, which must have been very exciting if you were an American in 1893 who maybe never even left your state. And then you go to the World's Fair and you're seeing cultures from all around the world. That must have been just mind-blowing. Yes. I mean, we take that kind of thing, I think, for granted now. Each nation was able to choose a delegate to represent them. So there were actually delegates um, and they would get together and have like kind of meeting, like mock UN sort of things. They'd get together and talk. Some of these delegates were pretty famous. Haiti chose Frederick Douglass who um, had been the U.S. minister to Haiti, so he had a relationship with the Haitian government. So Douglas, while protesting the World's Fair, did attend, but he would also distribute pamphlets, again, sort of calling out the lack of representation of African Americans and their contributions to the United States. I said this before, but 27 million people go to the World's Fair between May and October. To put this into context, the population of the U.S. around this time was about 65 million. Almost half. That's almost half. Yeah, that's crazy. 
obviously must have been people from not from the U.S. that came, but like. Absolutely. There are international visitors that are coming, people coming from around the world. But still, it's just and imagine you have 65 million people and 27 million of them are converging in this one place over five or six months. It's just crazy. Must have been such a boon to Chicago's tourism and it must have been crazy. And I mean, this is really aided by the fact that we at this point have robust rail in the United States. So you can you can come from your small town in the middle of nowhere and get to Chicago by rail. And people did. The fare was relatively inexpensive to enter. So it only cost about 50 cents to attend, which was not it was not nothing, but not so much. The average worker could probably scrape together 50 cents and maybe a train ticket if you needed to. It also did provide a lot of jobs. There were lots of work opportunities. Thousands of people helped build the fair. Thousands of workers kind of streamed into Chicago to build the White City, to build all this stuff. And then they took the money they made and they stayed to enjoy the fair. People stayed for months. The fair was originally only six days a week, closed on Sundays, but the Chicago Women's Club, which was a progressive group that advocated for labor and advocated for women and immigrants, they petitioned the fair to stay open on Sundays, and they did that for working class Americans. Most Americans, if you worked kind of a working class labor job, your only day off was Sunday. So that was the only chance you would have had. So the fair really early on, like a few weeks into the fair, changes its policy thanks to the Chicago Women's Club and remains open seven days a week. So you really have all kinds of people going to this fair. I think, you know, at a time where so much of the U.S. was stratified into different, you know, you had, I think, racial divisions, you had class divisions, the fair was sort of bringing together everybody into one place. I think it's also really interesting that it brings all kinds of people and shows them like there are the differences between different parts of the United States, different places around the world and sort of gives people, particularly working class people, like a a window into different experiences other than their own. So I feel like the idea that it remains open on Sunday is such an important progressive tool that's going to really sort of bear out in the next few years about organization and labor and sort of leisure time and things like that. I think that that's really important. Absolutely. And we're going to see other progressive elements, even though this is ultimately the product of big business, the fair itself. There are a lot of progressive groups that use this to their advantage, and that includes women's groups. Uh, There will be women activists who lobby very, very hard to have a designated woman's hall in the fair, and they want it to promote suffrage to promote women's education, to promote temperance, which we've talked about a little bit on the podcast is an important women's issue at this time, and to promote the philanthropy that women's groups are doing. The late 1800s is a boom for women's groups. Groups like the Junior League that still exists today, groups like the Daughters of the American Revolution, all of these sort of heritage groups and civic groups for women really boom out of this era. And so women say, hey, we want to make sure that we are part of this fair in a real way, and they will be given the woman's building, which is what it's called, and they get their own hall that is open the entire time, and they basically get to promote all these causes that they're passionate about. They will hold a contest. Only female architects get to enter, so they have a female architect for the building. They have an official sculptor who is a female for the building, and um they use female artists for the interior design. Uh, one of the artists that will help decorate the woman's building is Mary Cassatt, the impressionist. Um, she'll do an interior mural that was called Modern Woman that was 
a way in which to sort of showcase how the new woman was emerging, these new roles for women were emerging. Uh, and then as part of the women's building, they actually had a children's building that was all about childcare and child raising and new ideas about science in terms of rearing your children. So this is really, really interesting. If you think about things like the PTA, the PTA is born out of this era. So the fair to me continues to be such a great representation in a microcosm of what was happening across the country. If you were walking through this fair and looking at these halls and exhibits, you could get a sense of the sea change that's happening in the United States as we barrel towards the start of the 20th century. And there's so much going on in this fair. It's so cool. A lot of things we're going to talk about, we still have, for example, the Ferris wheel comes from this World's Fair, George Washington Gale Ferris Jr., which is a great name, (laughs) quite a name. He wants to answer the Eiffel Tower. So we got to create something that's big and that shows off. And his idea is that it should move. And so he's going to create a 264 foot tall moving wheel. And you get into a pod. And in my mind, it's kind of like a proto version of like the London Eye because you could fit 40 people in these pots. And it was slow moving because, you know, technology back then. It was like 20 minutes to go all the way around. Right. Take 20 minutes to go all the way around. So it's a thing in my mind. That's kind of it's a a very pre-modern version of that. And Ferris is a young guy. He's like 33 and he's going to spend money of his own to do this, like a lot of money, $25,000 on this proposal. And 1.4 million people are going to ride this Ferris wheel. It costs 50 cents a ride. So it's in addition to your the price you already paid to get in which is a lot of people. And there were people who were scared of it. There were people who were horrified by it, but most people just thought it was the coolest thing ever. And it was a huge success. Poor Ferris, really not so much. It didn't really work out for him quite as well, but he he had a lot of debts. He never really paid off his suppliers. He never got paid by the fair, what he was owed. And so it's going to kind of come to a bad end. He dies a few years later, bankrupt. But the idea takes off and it is named after him. And we have them still, which I think is kind of cool. And I think today we hear a Ferris wheel and we think about little like carnivals and things. And those are born out of the 1893 World's Fair too. The World's Fair in 1893 is the first to have a midway, which is what we kind of called these sort of carnivals and small fairs. But this was sort of the first World's Fair that was like, let people have fun. Let them play carnival games. Let them compete to win prizes. A young music promoter is the one who sort of organizes this area and he calls it the Midway Plaisance which is where we get the phrase midway today. So there were like little things you could ride and little things you could do. The man who uh, would basically create Coney Island in New York City, sort of the amusement park there, was inspired by going to the 1893 World's Fair. He rode the Ferris wheel and it blew his mind. And he's like, we could do this. And, And when I think of kind of that early 1900s New York, that's what I think of. I think of people going out to Coney Island on the weekend. So this sort of midway entertainment is going to become huge in the first part of the 20th century. It just feels like a big fair, like a big like country fair that comes around in the summertime to me, like just on a gigantic scale. You had tightrope walkers and parachute drops, which 
no thanks. But I mean, parachute drops, this is before we've gotten to like World War One or anything. So I don't know. <laughs> we don't have planes yet. Like you can't get them up. Anyway, no. Um, you have the first commercial movie theater, which is amazing to me. In 1893, we have moving pictures. Yeah. So we actually, there's a lot of moving pictures in 1893. Edison is there with his kinescope uh, showcasing that, even though he's bitter about not being sort of the electrician. But there's a man um, named Edward Moybridge who would be placed in the zoo praxographical hall. I'm probably not saying that right. <laughs> I was a history major, so uh, sorry. But he was uh, doing the science of animal locomotion. And you may not realize you know Edward Moybridge's work, but if you've ever seen those images of a horse like broken down running, where you can literally see every step of the process, that's what Moybridge was doing. He was making moving pictures of animals and motion to understand movement. So he's showcasing this. People paid to come in and watch these, thus the first commercial movie theater. Um, but then you've got Edison with the kinescope. You have so much cool technology. The first moving walkway. Can you imagine that? Like when you go to the airport and you're like, get on the walkway and the walkway will end in 20 feet. Yeah, this is like 70 years before the Jetsons people. Right, this is crazy. It really, it was kind of a movable pavement and it was... That's what they called it, like movable pavement. It was prone to breaking down, but you know, what are you going to do? It's brand new. And you sat in it because it didn't go very fast. So you actually sat. It makes me think, it's funny you mentioned Disney earlier because the moving walkway here makes me think of the people mover at Disney World where you sort of sit and the pavement moves. But Disney was very... Very much influenced by the 1964 World's Fair. So much of Disney World sure. is sort of, or Disneyland is born out of that, that 1964 World's Fair. There's indoor air conditioning, which in Chicago in the summertime was probably not the worst thing in the world. That's pretty cool. There's, I, I love this, a life-size reproduction of all three of Columbus's ships, which must have been insane. They were very popular. Apparently you could tour them. <laughs> um, when it comes to the indoor air conditioning, I just want to mention that was at the Krupp Gun Pavilion, which this guy was a German Krupp. He was like one of the richest men in the world. He created cannons and arms and guns, but he also very likely had a very dark secret that I hope to explore in another podcast. And that's all I'm going to say right now. But um, air conditioning, though, people were freaking out. He basically used these two big cooling fountains and people would come up and put their hands near the cooling fountain the way you might warm your hand out of fire. That's what people would do. They just stand and feel the cold air. One man who was interviewed by a newspaper said he thought he had gotten the consumption when he walked in the building because that's how quickly he got cold. It was so terrifying. He thought he had consumption. So it was, you know, there people had had experimented with indoor cooling, but this kind of air conditioning system was brand new. And again, people must have just been blown away. And then the food. The food. So many foods come out of this fair. Becca and I love any like food-based history. Like we're, we're into that. So there's so much food, juicy fruit gum, which you can walk down to the street and buy now cream of wheat, cracker jacks, Vienna beef sausages, aunt Jemima's pancake flour. Yeah. Talk about problematic. The aunt Jemima's yeah. pancake flour exhibit yeah. hall portion. Oh yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. They hired a formerly enslaved woman named Nancy green to portray the character and demonstrate the flower. And you can find images of this and it is 
not great. Deeply. And uh, we, we continue to be unexpectedly relevant on this pod, but Aunt Jemima certainly been in the news. It's no longer called that, actually. No. Um, no but no. this was so popular, having this woman demonstrate this flower that they had 25,000 orders, like, in a week after her demonstration. Milton Hershey is inspired by this. He has a caramel business in, in uh, Pennsylvania, and he's going to be so inspired by this World's Fair, he's going to decide, hey... I'm going to transition my caramel business into a chocolate one. Pretty good decision. Yeah, yeah. That worked out okay for him, I think. Yeah, he's looking at European kind of technology and manufacturing and going like, wait a second, I could be making chocolate. I also like that hamburgers are popularized. Hamburgers existed, but the fair really popularizes them as a quick, fast food on the go. All of a sudden, you had newspapers out west that were talking about this incredible sandwich with the chopped meat and the onions, and people are really, really excited about it. And so it, hamburgers existed, but the fair popularizes them. Same with diet soda. Diet carbonated soda had existed, but there were giant soda fountains at the fair, and so it puts it out there. And then a very personal favorite of mine, the Paps Blue Ribbon. PBR. The Peeber. Yeah. Um, Paps oh, had already been tying blue ribbons onto his bottles. This was a marketing technique. And literally every bottle of Paps Blue Ribbon in the 1890s came with a blue silk ribbon. In fact, they did this all the way to World War I. And then there was a silk shortage because mm. uh, they used it for parachutes and other things. And But they would actually tie a little blue ribbon. But then Paps Blue Ribbon is a warded a ribbon. So it becomes sort of the blue ribbon beer. And there was a whole big controversy because Budweiser had initially won the ribbon and then it gets kind of, it has to be given over to Paps Blue Ribbon. It's like a whole thing. And it's interesting to me, like Paps Blue Ribbon is still made and there's a lot of, still very, very much, much made. In, in, in a union mm, brewery. I really love it. There is, American um, made. there's a lot of Terman's brewing beer around this time. This is pre-prohibition. You've got Anheuser-Busch, Schlitz, Pabst, bunch of other ones, many of whom did not survive prohibition, but because of the popularity of Pabst, that I would imagine that this is part of what makes Pabst into like a household name that he's able to sort of survive. Absolutely. And then the blue ribbon marketing is so genius and they're able to kind of keep the blue ribbon when they transition to doing labels. They keep the blue ribbon on the label. That's today, right? You know, you have Paps Blue Ribbon when you have that label. I could be blindfolded and probably pick out a can of, of Paps Blue Ribbon personally. It's like many, many, many a peeber consumed. Nice. There's a football game. One of the first evening football games ever was played Chicago versus West Point in a 40 minute game. What are you going to do? Chicago wins. 14-0. West Point didn't score once. Sorry, West Sorry, Point. <laughs> but yeah, one of the first night games, they actually, because they had the illumination, they played football at night and people freaked out. Part of the reason they only play for 40 minutes is people just were so like jazzed about this and people were kind of like losing their minds and there's so many people who come to this like the intersection of so many different we've already talked about a bunch of people but pretty much if you were alive at this time you probably and you were anyone of note you probably went to this fair uh helen keller was there she was a kid at this time she was like 13 she's gonna come with annie sullivan her mentor her her assistant Alexander Graham Bell is there. Catherine Lee Bates, who's going to be inspired to write America the Beautiful by the fair. So you've heard of America the Beautiful. Uh, Nikola Tesla shows up to do a week of demonstration. He's also involved in electricity, similar to Westinghouse and Edison. His demo, he literally shoots electrical sparks out of his hands 
And it's like magic. People, he only is there for about a week doing this demonstration, but you cannot get into the Tesla demonstration because word spreads that he's doing insane things. John Philip Sousa performs at the dedication. DC zone, John Philip Sousa. Anton Dvorak, who's a famous Czech composer. Got Joplin, the spread of ragtime and its popularity is going to be credited to the fair, the beginning of ragtime. Um, the Mormon Tabernacle Choir performs for the first time outside of Utah. Harry Houdini does a um, sort of muscle man dis- display of uh, magic. John Singer Sargent is there. Louis Comfort Tiffany makes his reputation. Pierre de Coubertin, who is going to spearhead the modern Olympic Games, he was there and got inspiration from it. So the link between the World's Fair to the Olympics is not accidental. Everybody is there. And you can imagine, there are so many famous people. Um, I should mention there's Wild Bill Buffalo Cody is there, but not actually there because they decide not to have him in the exhibit or in the fair itself. There was some disagreement. And so he basically sets up just next door to the fair and makes a ton of money and doesn't have to give any of it to the fair. But so you have him, you have Annie Oakley, you have all of these Western performers that are so popular here at the fair. And just about every important politician will visit, every important congressman will visit. You've got all these important people. And the plan is for when this fair ends in October, kind of one year after the Columbus anniversary, 400th anniversary will be the 400th and first, they're going to have a big, huge closing ceremony. But that is not what's going to happen. So not great. It's not so great. There is the fair is booming. It's two days before the end of the fair. And the mayor of Chicago, Carter Harrison Sr., who is a cousin to William Henry Harrison, who we've talked about on the pod, and Benjamin Harrison, and a very popular congressman, a very popular mayor. He is serving his fifth term as mayor. He's just a few months into his fifth term. Carter Harrison Sr., who has had the joy of being mayor during this fair, will be assassinated by a man named Patrick Prendergast. And the story of this assassination will sound familiar if you have listened to our podcast. Patrick Prendergast was a disgruntled office seeker. He had supported Carter Harrison Sr. for his reelection, confident that he would be given a position in his government. And when that political appointment doesn't happen, Prendergast starts harassing Harrison, starts showing up places. And when that doesn't work, he shows up and shoots him. Does that sound like anything else we've talked about? What does that sound like? Sounds like James Garfield (laughs) and Charles Gateau. Which had not been all that long before this, about a decade or so before. So what happens two days before this fair closes is that you have the immensely popular mayor killed by this disgruntled office seeker. And so instead of there being a closing ceremony, there is a public memorial. So this fair ends with a funeral. That kind of stinks. It's a bummer. As a... It is a bummer. Like you wanted this big closing ceremony and they were going to have this big to do and it was going to be, you know, all sorts of people were going to perform and suddenly like the fair ends with a, a funeral instead of a celebration, which is not great. Um, the cultural influence, like the legacy of the fair though, really has not ended. 
it's again, everyone who's anybody at that time comes to this fair. It's going to mark a huge shift for architecture, art, culture, travel, politics, all sorts of things sort of come out of this, the city beautiful movement. You've got a lot of um, sort of increasing urbanization, industrialization. You have people getting the ideas of, and moving to different places and sort of absorbing different cultures other than their own. You have a lot of commercial products that are going to be like we talked about. They're going to be marketed after this. Uh, and it's really just, it's hard to overstate just how really influential this was. There are other world's fairs and they're important, but this one is just seems to have its tentacles everywhere. And all the world's fairs after this, I feel like there's another one in 1901 in Buffalo, New York, which spoiler alert, doesn't end great for its most famous visitor. Um, that sort of is based on this, the idea of it, the sort of scope of it. And so this is gonna be really a hugely influential uh, idea moving forward is the, the things that come out of this in terms of so many different aspects of life. And I think I'd be hard pressed to find another event in American history that brings together so many notable Americans from different fields where you have your scientists and your engineers and your artists and your architects and your political figures and your activists all coming together into one space. It just doesn't really happen again in the same way. And there, I think this particular exposition, this particular fair just hit the United States at the right time in the right place. So much so. And there certainly are. And I, I imagine someday soon we will talk about the 1901 Pan American Exposition in Buffalo. I would love to talk about the St. Louis um, World's Fair just because I've seen Meet Me in St. Louis like a thousand times in my lifetime. But this Chicago one is just key, just so key. And what's really tragic to me as a huge nerd is I went to Chicago for the first time as a teenager. I, it was my first visit and I was so excited. I wanted to see stuff from the fair and you sort of realize, oh, like it just between fire, between teardown, between urban renewal and development, these structures, which were never built to last forever, are almost entirely gone. In fact, the only big piece of the fair left in Chicago is what is today the Museum of Science and Industry, which was the Palace of Fine Arts during the fair. And the reason it's still here is because that building happened to have been fireproof. It was built fireproof, thus it has managed to survive. So much of it was not meant to last. So it's really kind of fascinating, but probably like me, you were probably inspired by reading The Devil in the White City and wanted to go see what is left. That is exactly what happened to me. I wanted to go to Chicago and see stuff and there's not much there. There's some individual works of art, some individual sculptures and pieces. Um, there's definitely been some, some recreation around Jackson Park of trying to have some of the physical space as it were, the green space, but you're not going to see it the way it was. And that's part of the beauty of it, but also sort of the sadness I'm of sad. it. The influence is not, you, you, to see the impact of the fair, you're not going to go and see a bunch of buildings. You're going to see it in our culture and our society today. Yes. And there are pictures of it. Um, you can find them online uh, of the fair sort of in progress. Uh, they're all black and white, but they're still really kind of cool. Uh, you get the sense of the white city and the sort of illuminated nature of it and how 
really nice that was. And it's going to be really a model for everything that kind of comes after it. So there's so much of the City Beautiful movement when you go to urban spaces and they've been sort of cleared out to make way for these really beautiful buildings. Washington, D.C. is hugely influenced by the City Beautiful movement. Absolutely. And and now it's very hard for me to like walk down Washington, D.C., particularly through like Federal Triangle to walk through, which um, Burnham had a big role in sort of developing what we consider Federal Triangle today, walking down Pennsylvania Avenue and not seeing Burnham's vision, this vision of taking the grandiosity of the World's Fair and applying it to the nation's capital in a way that calls back to L'Enfant's original vision. So in a very direct way, I think D.C. as we know it today is a result of the World's Fair. So that is my thesis for why we talked about it on the podcast. Oh, I like it. Plus, it's really <laughs> like so it's the intersection of so many different people. We have already talked about We could spin off like 10 more episodes about some of the individual scandals and dramas and things that emerge. But this is where we will end today. Thank you guys, as always, for tuning in. We are just such a huge fan of our listeners. We appreciate you guys so much, especially our patrons, but everybody who's listening to the pod. Your emails, your tweets, we love them. Uh, keep them coming. You can reach out to us, tourguidetellall at gmail.com. If you have questions, ideas, want to pitch the pod, you can also find us on social media at tourguidetellall on Facebook and Instagram, at tourguidetell on Twitter. Thank you guys so very much for continuing to listen to us. We will be back next week. We're going to talk. Actually, next week's going to be a really good one. We are going to talk about a new memorial that is opening up in Washington and uh, sort of a little background about it and why it's there and why it's cool. Ooh. All right. We'll see you next time. Bye, guys. Bye. I'm your host, Candon Arseniega. Dan King and I do the intros, the editing, the admin. Becca Grawl and Rebecca Fackner do the research and the talking. We are all guides for free tours by foot in Washington, D.C. This is Tour Guide Tell All. Until next time, 